0: Amen. Awesome. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll be reading from verse 10 through to verse 24. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else... has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I laid down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation where they were when Christ called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Then let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith, the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were when God called them.
1: Jackie, okay, thank you, music team. You, you probably you couldn't tell, but um, we actually had to have some late substitutions this week for our music team, um, because of sickness, as is the case at the moment, it seems, and uh, I'm very thankful for those who are able to step up, step up and step in. Uh, it's wonderful to lead us in the praise of God. Thank you. well <clears throat> um, I don't think he's still here. Uh, he was in the first service. I did, I did want to just publicly thank uh, Darren for his work. Uh, I, he's not here, but uh, we are very thankful for all the work that he did amongst us, I- encouraging us to, to reach out to the lost. And of course, Darren, as he pursues business and, and potentially uh, more uh, theological training, will undoubtedly continue to reach out to the lost himself, as he, he, as he can't help doing. So <laughs> So, please, if you get an opportunity, thank Darren and, and encourage him for the work he did amongst us, even as he uh, steps into a new chapter. Well, last week, um, we, we finished with the idea that God wants us to serve Him and preference Him in everything, in every choice we make, including uh, the very personal and kind of very dear choice of who we marry, and we noted that by default, uh, we tend to, it's kind of the built-in reflex in our culture, we tend to make choices toward uh, what makes us happy. It's that, that's kind of the, the natural mechanism, the measuring stick for how should I choose? Well, what would make me happy? And, and even as we seek to do things for others, we ask ourselves, well, what would make them happy? Uh, not only so, but when we think about our future, when we think about what we want to do with our life, that is often the measuring. Well, what would fulfill me? What would make me happy? What do I want to be and and do? And who do I... right? That's the measuring stick. And Paul addresses that here. Now, he doesn't address it directly because uh, the idea that you would choose toward your own happiness actually only arrives in history at the time of the Enlightenment, which is about the 1800s, right? That's a a relatively, in historical terms, that's a relatively new idea. And yet, as Paul is addressing other issues, he helps us think about that ourselves. Paul here is, particularly in the last part of that passage, he's he's helping the Corinthians think about, well, when I became a Christian, or when I become a Christian, what do I need to change in my life? Well, this is totally pagan society. I become a Christian. Uh, what do I? What should I change? I'm a, I'm a new person. Should I be changing my marriage, or my religious observance, or uh, my slavery status? I mean, the big life things. What should I do? How, how should I work that out? And uh, you might have noticed as we're going through, Paul actually kind of says, "No, don't. <laughs> we well, don't need to, at least." And as we think about what Paul has to say to them, it helps us to think about what we're looking forward to, what we're hoping for, what we're prizing, the big choices we're making. And as we seek to do, as, as Miranda read that verse, she's absolutely right, that that idea, you are bought at a price, you are not your own, honour Christ with your bodies. Uh, that concept, right back from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 7, is, is core to understanding what's what we're supposed to do and it's our guide stone but how is it our guide stone well let's let's have a look verse 10 uh, and 11 paul starts uh, talking to us about divorce and the the command itself i think is fairly clear verse 10 and 11 to the married i give this command not i but the lord a wife might not must not separate from her husband but if she does she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Now, before we look at the kind of content, if you like, of those verses, I I just want to stop and and observe something that's in this passage, because it's it's somewhat unusual. Paul there says, not I, but the Lord. And when you get down to verse 12, he says, I, not the Lord. Oh, what's that about? That's sort of a Funny thing for Paul to say. And, and, and if you notice, last week, uh, he said in verse 6, I say this as a con- concession, not a command. Right? So he's given them an instruction, uh, but it's a concession, it's not a command. And then in verse 25, he, he says something kind of similar. Now, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy, mercy is trustworthy. What's going on? It's sort of an unusual way for Paul to be talking. Normally he says, do this or don't do that. Like, But here he seems to be equivocating a bit about what, what he's doing. Well, I think what's going on in verse 10, when he says, not I but the Lord, is he's making it clear that the thing he's about to say is actually something that Jesus himself said. So in other words, he's just passing it on. And indeed, if you were to go to... Um, The Gospels and and Matthew 19 is an example, Jesus does say something very, very similar, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery, right? That's Jesus talking. So, when He gives the command in verse 10, He's essentially just passing on what Jesus has already said. When He gets to verse 12, He's dealing with a situation that Jesus never addressed, and so, what he's saying, is not that he's not just passing on information from Jesus, he's pulling together what he knows of God and giving a command on what he understands about God and what God likes and so on. Now, it finds its way into our Bible, so <laughs> presumably, yeah, God was happy with that, right? I mean, Paul didn't know he was writing the Bible when he wrote this down, but uh, God knew and God uh, directed him to write something that was indeed in line with His Word. So, that command is a command from God. When you get to verse 6 and verse 25, uh, Paul's sort of a bit uh, softer. He says, this is not, it's a concession, not a command. This isn't a command from the Lord. It's a judgment of my own. He, he's hes doing that because actually, unlike what's in verses 10 and following, 10 and 12 and so on, they're, they're commands. That's like, you—you. You, this is what God wants you to do. This is what you've got to do. Uh, but in the earlier section, 6 and so on, and and then what follows 25, Paul's sort of saying, well, this is good, I think this is a good way to live, but it's not a must, it's not a command as such. Paul is, in many ways, in this passage, dealing with, as I said a little earlier, something that's very, it's deeply personal and often quite complex, there's no one situation that fits everything and so he he's being deliberately careful in laying down principles and commands in a way that we know when we have room to move, if you like, and when we don't. What's essential and what's sort of left up to our wisdom and judgment? And there might be today, as I lay down principles and the commands of God, that you look at it and listen to it and say, well, hang on a minute, what about if this happens or if that happens or what about if this person does this or that? And that's fair because what we're laying down here is the general principle, the general rule, but we can't deal with every specific case, otherwise we'll be here all morning, which might please me but probably wouldn't please most of you. And so that's what's happening, that's what Paul's doing. So that's why he writes that way. And he writes, this is the only place I know he writes like that, uh, so it's it's because it's this difficult issue. Well what does Paul actually say in verse 10? It's pretty straightforward, do not divorce, do not divorce your husband or wife and if you do, if you cannot stay with them, do not remarry. It's not hard, it's like the verses aren't complex are they? It's, it's clear and that's exactly what Jesus says back in Matthew 19 and other places, when he says that in Matthew 19, he bases that on uh, the uh, Genesis uh, chapter 3, no, 2, Genesis chapter 2, um, where God says, a, father, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And Jesus goes on to say, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That one flesh union that we've talked about in the previous weeks is so key, it's it's such a real joining, like it's not just a metaphorical kind of nice idea, oh yeah, we're kind of joined together in some way. No, no, you, you are joined together by God, through the promises you make and through the sex, that physical joining. Husbands and wives are joined and God says, I did that, don't break it. Now, the instruction He gives about divorce and remarriage in verse 10 and 11 are to... Uh, uh, husband and wife who are both converted, both believers. Uh, he looks in verse 12 following it, a husband or a wife who's a believer but the other one is not. But even for the case where both husband and wife are believers, this is a, a tricky command, isn't it? Like, it's, it's hard for us to hear. There are exceptions, Paul doesn't mention the exceptions, I'll mention why I think that is in a second, but, in mentioning that Jesus has given this command, he reminds us of the exceptions and, as I read a, a second ago, the exception is except for sexual immorality. So, if your husband or wife goes and sleeps with someone else, then yes, you are, are permitted to divorce and remarry because they broke, they broke the union. And, I would add to that, uh, abuse. Abuse, in abuse, the other person, the abuser, breaks the union by, through their abuse. But even with those exceptions, or those kind of situations where you can divorce and remarry, this is still difficult. Indeed, if you were to go and read Matthew 19, you'll see there that Jesus' disciples, when they hear Jesus say this, they go, what? Oh, it's better that no one marries. This is too hard. No one can live up to this standard. And Jesus sort of says, well, yeah, for some people, that's true. Yeah, that's right. But if it's difficult for us to hear, if it was difficult for the disciples to hear, I reckon it's even more difficult for the Corinthians to hear. Uh, and particularly, I suspect, for the, the wives. See, what, remember what we've said about uh, the Corinthian society in previous weeks. There's a very good chance that prior to conversion, the father, the husband, the husband, has been sleeping, having sex with the slaves. That was permitted. Nothing was thought of that at all in that society. Uh, There's a decent chance that he had a mistress. That was common. There's also a very decent chance, given that Paul has to address this in the previous chapter, that the husband has been sleeping with prostitutes. In fact, the husband might have continued sleeping with prostitutes (laughs) from chapter 6, after he was converted, right? And so, this instruction to stay with your husband is hard. Now, I'm not saying that Paul is contradicting Jesus' uh, sort of exception, sexual immorality and abuse. I, I don't think that's true at all, but I think what he's saying is, Yes, even though those things happen, if you can, stay. And I think that's why he addresses the wives first. All through this chapter, I've noted this last week, all through this chapter, Paul does something radical for that culture. He addresses men and women equally. He speaks to men and then women, or husbands and then wives, and 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 he instructs them equally. But he always starts with the man. I mean, that's just how that culture worked, except here. He starts with the wife. And I think that's because she had the most grounds to leave. She could have left. And I think the reason Paul uh, only obliquely kind of hints at the exceptions that Jesus has laid down is because he wants them to consider staying, even if it's allowable for them to leave. Like, it, it's it, yeah, it is allowable for you to leave, but you but think about staying now that's true even if there were exceptions he he wants them to consider that they can if they are allowed to divorce and remarry under those exceptions still but if they can stay that would be great and he certainly wants them to think that way i'm going to stay if it's just that their husband is a bit of a pig Or just not very nice or just a bit selfish not to the level of abuse but you know a selfish lazy or you know just self-centered or if the wife is like that he's saying no no you need to stay with them now our gut reaction to that is hang hang on a minute are you saying you want me to stay in an unhappy marriage is that what you're saying? You know, put a past, put aside past hurts, like per- betrayal or lying, maybe even. You know, there's no shared interest, there's no shared love. We don't, you know, we've kind of grown apart or whatever. Yeah, you, know, you want me to stay in that? Well, why? Well, that, that doesn't make any sense. And you might think, oh, well, it's easy for you to say. Well, I would say to you, how do you know it's easy for me to say? Sorry, Vicky, but. I mean seriously, you don't know what goes on in my house. And in any case, actually my my instinct, the thing that I kind of naturally want to do, is to soften this. Because, like you, I grew up in our culture and it feels cruel, right, to say this, because that's how our culture thinks, because I ought to let you and encourage you to pursue your own happiness. But the good news is, I'm not saying this, and it's not my, <laughs> this isn't about me, it's nothing to do with me. I'm just telling you what it says, and God says. And He sees better than I do, or you do, and He only ever commands what is good for us. After all, it'd be, I mean, be kind of silly, wouldn't it, if, if Jesus went to the cross to save us, He suffered all of that. And then he turned around and said to himself, you know what, I'm going to make up a command just to make their life difficult. Right? That's, that's illogical, as, as well as all sorts of other things. And so, this command to stay married, even if everything's not rosy, again, not, we're not talking about abuse, we're not talking about sexual immorality, we're, we're talking about just... Things aren't that great. This command from God is for our good. It's for our good. Now, how can it be for our good? Well, it, if, if, you ha- if we have the view of our world, our culture, the, the stories that we hear, if we have that view, then it can never be for our good. Because what do the stories tell us? They tell us that the way to be happy in marriage, the way to be happy in life, is to find the one. That magical person, who you find them, you marry them, and they complete you, and then everything is just happy and wonderful. Your soulmate, you see, and and, and so then, if I happen to find myself in a marriage where I'm not happy, it must be, by that logic, that I married accidentally married the wrong one, and so I need to go and find the right one and get rid of the one that I've got. Like that, that's that's the logic, and that's the kind of logic. I don't know if it's that thought through, but that's kind of the way we operate in our culture. And so, it sounds as though God is dooming us to be perpetually unhappy and um, in a terrible marriage forever. I mean, I guess that could happen, but but that's not what's really going on because, remember, these two people are are believers that he's writing to at this time and as Paul Tripp says, a marriage of unity, understanding and love is not rooted in romance but in worship. It's not anti-romance either but it's not rooted in romance, it doesn't, that is, it doesn't grow out of romance, that is, the warm fuzziness and all the things that we get told are wonderful to make your marriage great, that actually don't work. No, no, what makes a marriage great is when both of you worship God. I probably should add to that but in worship of God, because actually the problem in most marriages, in most of our lives, in our relationships, is that we worship ourselves. (laughs) That's what breaks down relationships. But when we worship God, and because we worship God, we, we love the other person and do good for them, Then we can grow into a marriage of love unity understanding and I don't want to be glib about this as if this is easy because I know some marriages are really hard and yet this is the seed this is the the core of how can God even command this well because he knows that this is what's good for us that when we we worship God and so love the other person we can in time find unity understanding and love and anyone who's been married for any amount of time will tell you that marriage is wonderful for uh, sanctification because the other person is very good at showing you all your faults isn't that true I mean you cannot live that close to someone and for your f- and your faults not be exposed that's just how that's just how it is uh, and so God uses this uh, as we worship him as we serve him to change us so that's the word to uh, to to People, married people who are both Christian, husband and wife. This is what I want you to do. What about if one of you is not a Christian? That's what he means by the rest. That is the rest of you who are married. Uh, and he and he says basically, if your unbelieving spouse is willing to live with you, don't divorce them. Stay with them. Uh, he doesn't say, but presumably, again, uh, the, the, the exceptions that Jesus has given, the abuse and, and uh, sexual immorality, uh, uh, are, are still there. And, and Paul goes on to say, look, if they leave, verse 15, uh, you're not bound to them anymore, that is, you can remarry in that situation, so it's another way that one could remarry if the, the unbelieving spouse said, well, no, I don't want this anymore, and they left. But the point is that, again, you stay together if at all possible again you might ask why doesn't Jesus deal with this well it's because Jesus is dealing with a totally different situation Paul is speaking into a situation uh, where uh, the gospel has gone into a a new area a pagan area and of course there are going to be husbands who are converted when the wife isn't and wives converted when the husband isn't whereas Jesus is speaking to the Jewish people now I'm not saying they're all believers in the sense of being saved but they all uh, had a common belief set so, it was a, Jesus didn't kind of need to address this, Paul does. But then, so that's the basic idea, stay, if you can, if, if they're willing. But then Paul says something in verse 14, that's a bit odd. Uh, maybe you wonder why it's, why it's there, because he says, well, this is why you can stay married to them. But he's kind of answering a question that maybe you're not asking for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it it is, they are holy. (laughs) Okay, Paul. (laughs) Now, you might have heard those verses uh, used in other ways, but why has he got this here? Uh, If you remember two weeks ago, we said, or Paul said, that the reason it was wrong to sleep with a prostitute was because, uh, as a believer, you are united to Christ, not just spiritually, but your body is part of Christ, says Paul. And he uses, again, this one flesh union thing from that that's in marriage. He says that's what Christ does with His body, His church. So, we are part of His body. This is part of the body of Christ. Now, if I go and... Uh, sleep with a prostitute, I am uniting Christ's body with a prostitute. And Paul says, you can't, you can't do that. Why? Because the prostitute is, is uh, still in sin, she's unclean, he is unclean. Now, I'm not being rude about her, or him, but because we're all unclean, right? That's, that's the Old Testament, that's what the Old Testament teaches us, that, that without Christ, we are, we are covered, in, the, if you like, in the filth of sin and someone needs to take that off us so that we can go into the presence of God because God is a holy holy God. And when we are saved in Christ, he, he takes the filth off us and puts it on Himself and He's crucified on the cross for all of our sin and He takes it away and we're cleansed, cleansed by His blood. And, and that's what you are in Christ and you can't go and join that with a sinful Still filthy, you're joining Christ to someone who's still filthy in their sin. You can't. That, that's Paul's point in chapter six. But that raises a problem, doesn't it? <laughs> well, what about my unbelieving husband or wife? Because they're in the same situation. Again, this is not a question that you might have thought of before, but that's because I think we've lost this concept of how united we are with Christ and what it means to have sex with someone that that unites us with someone. We just don't think in those terms, but that is how Paul and God thinks. And so this is a problem that needs to be dealt with. Well, what's Paul's answer? His answer is, don't worry, they are sanctified through the believing spouse sanctified, made holy, set apart. They're not saved, that is very clear, verse 16, because he says, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, they're sanctified but they're not saved. So, what, really what Paul is doing here is he's saying God views them differently and it would seem that God views them differently because now these this unbelieving spouse these children as well have come into the community of God's gospel they get to hear the gospel they get to see people being transformed by the gospel uh, and so they are set apart they're not forgiven but they are somehow set apart made holy so that the husband or wife who is a believer does not defile Christ in his body by sleeping with their unbelieving spouse that that's what he's talking about here it's quite extraordinary But the point that's really important for us is this believing spouse is being asked to stay if they can even though it would be hard perhaps even harder than in the previous verses where both both are believers because this believing spouse is going to be transformed i mean they're going to be changed more and more from the culture that they've grown up in and in which they're their unbelieving spouse still is. They're going to start living new ways, they're going to have different values, they're going to want to live and prioritise Christ and so on and so forth. Um, and Paul says, no, stay. It's, it's an enormous sacrifice. Oh, not Maybe not for all of them, maybe for some of them they, they were very, very happy and it wasn't a sacrifice at all, but for, for some it would have been. And what was the motivation? Verse 16 as I said, that this person might come to faith. That you would honour Christ, yes, of course, but that your husband or wife who is not a believer would in time come to faith. That's a hard word, isn't it? For these Corinthian believers. How are they to do this? How is it possible to have the mindset that you're able to do this to stick in a difficult marriage, to stick, whether, whether the person is a believer or an unbeliever, to stick with them. Well, Paul starts to answer that in verse 17 and he says this, Nevertheless, or even so, or that's sort of a, I'm going to keep talking about this kind of word, uh, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them, just as the Lord has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Um, Paul says this three times. He says it in verse 20, he says it in verse 24, uh, but when he says it the first time, he adds this bit, uh, in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them. That is, when God calls someone to faith in Him, He understands what situation they're in. Not only does He understand, what Paul is saying is, the situation you were in when you were called to faith God put you in that. That is, if you were with uh, someone who's an unbeliever, you're married to someone who's an unbeliever, God knew that. If you're married to a, a, a pig of a man, God knew that. If you if you are, as we're going to see in a minute, a slave, God knew that. God knows what you are when He calls you. So, what I'm going to say is not because God doesn't understand the difficulty of it, He understands. In fact, he He put that you there for your good and for the good of others. And this is not some unusual command, this is something that I tell all the churches. Now, it's a, it's a thing that they have to wrestle with because here we've got people coming out of a completely pagan society, into Christianity, what should I change? And Paul gives two examples of thinking this principle that's there in verse 17 through. And the first one's got to do with circumcision, he says, uh, "Was he circumcised when he was called?" Uh, sh- don't get circumcised." Well, that's good news. Uh, was he already circumcised? Don't get uncircumcised." I've no idea how you, what, I don't know. I don't know. But that's what he said. Now, he goes on to say, "Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when when God called them. Uh, That's a big statement for a Jew. Circumcision is nothing. But circumcision pointed to Christ. It pointed to the need for a saviour. It pointed to the need for someone to uh, bring blessing back into the world. And Jesus has come. So we don't need the sign that points to that anymore. What matters is not picking up Old religious symbols, if you like, circumcision, what matters is obeying Christ, living for Jesus, actually listening to Him and submitting to Him and obeying Him. That's what matters, not adding religious uh, trappings. Now, this one is less relevant to us in some ways, because I'm not sure that many of us attempted to do that. Uh, perhaps someone becoming a Christian. Uh, when they come into the community of faith, it would be really good for them to not just pick up all the habits and traditions of that that church that they join. Be, it, it would be good for them to think about what does God actually want you to do, um, uh, because becoming a Christian is not by default becoming a Reformed person or a Baptist person <laughs> or a or a, a Christian from this country or that culture or whatever it is. We, we want to serve. I think that would be the takeaway from these verses as I say not perhaps not a huge question for us and neither is the next bit slavery because I don't think any of us are slaves and yet the principles here uh, are quite stark for us because what does Paul say? Verse 21, were you a slave when you were called, don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom do so. Notice immediately there's a difference here uh, if you were circumcised, don't get, don't get uncircumcised. If you weren't circumcised, don't get circumcised. Like he, says, he just says an absolute kind of just don't do it. Here, he says something quite different. Don't let it trouble you. Oh, okay. Though, if you can change your circumstance, if you can get your freedom, then do it. Now, how can Paul say, don't let slavery trouble you? That seems like it's fairly troubling, isn't it? I was a slave; I'd be fairly troubled by it. Well, uh, it's helpful to understand slavery. It's probably a little different to what we usually think of when we think of the word slavery. Um, for example, thirty percent of the population, at when Paul was writing this, was pro- were probably slaves or thereabouts. Another thirty percent of people in the c- in the community had been slaves; they were now living as freed people. And another thirty percent were born free. I, I don't know what happened to the other ten percent. Maybe they never existed. I'm, I'm not sure. But um, the point is that, like, you get sixty percent of the population is either is a slave or had been a slave. What? That's that's fairly high. And and people would actually at times deliberately sell themselves into slavery because it would open up pathways to advance in society and advance in wealth even, which you go, hang on a minute, but slaves don't have any wealth, but no, they did. In fact, the way you often became a freed person is that you saved up money during your slavery. Now, that's obviously, I don't quite understand how that works, but that's obviously quite different to what we're used to. Nevertheless, slaves lacked freedom and you were subject to the whims of your master, as as I said earlier, And so, probably the the saying that uh, someone has written, it mattered less that someone was a slave than whose slave one was. That's probably true. It mattered less that one was a slave than whose slave one was. So, if you had a good master, your life could actually be quite decent, but if you had a terrible master, then your life probably wasn't. And yet, Paul can say to both people, If you were a slave when you became a believer, don't let it trouble you. If you can get your freedom, great, but if not, now how can he say that? Well, he says, well because if you were a slave, like, when you you came to Christ, you are now a freed man to Christ, or a freed person to Christ. A freed person didn't suddenly become absolutely free, uh, uh, when you were freed, when you bought your freedom from slavery, you the, the, your old slave owner still worked, acted as your patron. They looked after you, they cared for you, and you owed them in some way, but you were not a slave any, any longer. And so what Paul is saying when, it, when he says, you're a freed man to Christ, he's saying, well, now your master is Christ. When you became a Christian, your master became Christ. And then he says, but if you were a freed, uh, free when you became a Christian, now you're a slave to Christ. So basically the idea is, whether you're a slave or free, when you become a Christian, your new master, your ultimate master, even if you still have an earthly master, your ultimate master is Christ. You need to serve and honour Him and as we already saw in the previous one, you need to obey God, not not add religious trappings but actually live in obedience to Jesus. That's why it shouldn't trouble you because Christ is your master. But now here's the point that Paul, the ultimate point Paul is making and this is why he's put what seems kind of a bit obtuse in the midst of this para- passage which is all about marriage and singleness and sexual temptation and so on. Whether you're married or unmarried doesn't determine whether you can serve Christ. Whether you're slave or free doesn't determine whether you can serve Christ. Whether you're happily married or Or unhappily married, doesn't determine if you can serve Christ. Indeed, we could say more uh, broadly, your ability to serve and honour God does not, is not actually determined or diminished by your circumstances. Your ability to serve and honour God is not actually determined or diminished by your circumstances. Now you might say, hang on a minute, I, I have a friend who's bedridden, how can they serve Christ? Or the, the person in jail in, in, in North Korea or in the Gulag, how can they serve Christ? Well, this is not saying that in every situation you might live, you have all the options open to you to serve Christ. No, in some situations, you only have a very narrow band of <laughs> options open to you in, to, uh, that you can serve Christ in. Nevertheless, you are still able to fully serve and honour Christ in that situation perhaps not in all the ways you would like to, but you still can serve and honour Christ in that situation. That's good news, isn't it? Isn't that good news? That no matter what circumstances come into your life, no matter what other people might do to you, no matter what is happening to you, you can still serve and honour Christ to the best of your ability in that situation. That's fantastic. Nothing can take that away from you. But what's the problem? That's not really the gospel we were hoping for. See, the gospel I think many of us are hoping for is that God is going to fix the circumstances of my life. It's not that I want to be able to serve Christ in any circumstances. That sounds quite hard, actually. We don't want a God who enables us to serve Him in all circumstances, we want a God who fixes all of our circumstances. Now, as I say, Paul does say, if you can gain your freedom, great, do it. And if you can improve your circumstances, great, do it. In obedience to Christ, of course, you can't break the commands He's given here, but and elsewhere but if there's if, if you can in obedience to Christ then by all means improve your circumstances but that's secondary to honoring and serving Jesus <laughs> we sometimes like to ask uh, young younger people we don't we don't ask older people because they've only got a few years left but we might ask a younger person what are you going to do what do you want to do with your life what do you want to be how do you want to you know what, what and, and what we, we expect answers around uh, family, I'd like to get married, I'd like to have kids, or I'd like to uh, travel the world, or I'd like to have this career or that career, or maybe like to do this or that, right? And, and, well, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But really, the answer for all of us, not just young people, for all of us should be, what do you want to do with your life? I would really like to honour and serve Christ. Yeah, 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 but I, I get that. But what do you want to do with your life? Well, do you know, I, I would love to honour and serve Christ. Okay, but what do you want to do with it? Well, let me tell you what I'd like to do. I would love to honour and serve Christ. But it doesn't matter what I do. I mean, there might be things that I like to do. Yes, that's fine, there's nothing wrong with it but what I want to do is honour and serve Christ. Whether I have this career or that career, whether I have a good boss or a terrible boss, whether, I, whether I'm married or I'm single, whether I'm happily married or, or, or not happily married, whether whatever might come my way, I want to serve and honour Christ. And the good news is, nothing can happen to you that can diminish your ability to serve and honour Christ. Christ, who at the cost of his own life, with his own blood, in his own agony, bought us from slavery to ourselves and to sin and brought us into the freedom of being his servants. We get to honour and serve Him and our capacity to do that is not determined or diminished by our circumstances because He enables us by His Spirit to live for Him everywhere and in every way. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we confess that in some senses, though we, we see the glory of, of having been bought by Jesus, we, we still balk to some degree at completely giving ourselves over to you, to being satisfied no matter what our circumstances, as long as we are honouring and serving Christ. Lord, we, we confess that we can struggle with that. we thank you for those who have been doing that for many, many years and we ask that you would enable us by your Spirit, all of us to more and more see the glory of our Saviour Jesus Christ and so long to serve Him no matter whether we are in good or hard times that we can Bring glory to Christ. Show us, Father, when we don't know how. Lift us up and comfort us when we feel crushed by our circumstances so that in all all things we might bring glory to our Saviour Jesus who paid such an enormous price to set us free. And we pray these things in His name. Amen. Well, if I might get you to stand, I wanted to finish with some words from uh, two Thessalonians, and I'll just remind uh, the parents of children, uh, if you could pick up your children after uh, the last song from the Kids at Church area, just for our child safety requirements. But let me finish with these words. May our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and by His grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word.